excited to be able to bring you the message today. This is week two in a series that we started last week. The series is called What to Make of It. And the series is sort of looking at what's going on in the world today and going straight back to the Bible, which is where we should always be to begin with, and going from God's Word and learning how we are to sort of process what's happening in the world, because for many of us this is unprecedented, how to see it from a biblical worldview, how to process it, how to live in it, and how to respond to the things that we hear. And I want to encourage you, if you weren't here last week or if you haven't heard the message, go back to our website, eastlandlife.com, or go to YouTube and search for Eastland Life Church in Metropolis, Illinois. You'll find a message called Trademark. That's the one I preached last week. And I want to encourage you to listen to it because today's message is like part two of that one. So if you haven't heard it yet, you'll be fine this morning. You don't need to leave and go watch it. But I want to encourage you to go back and watch it because we talk about, with all the conflicting voices that we hear in the world today, it can often be difficult to understand and to know who we should be listening to, who we should be taking advice from. And the idea that was put forth last week is from Romans chapter 1, which teaches that there are many people in the world who have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And because they have bought into the lie, God has turned them over to the lie, and they are now living out the negative consequences of the lie. The Bible says that when sin is conceived, it brings forth death, and they are now living that out. And when those people who are living out the lie are the ones telling the church how we should be gathering for worship, we are going to choose not to listen to the lie, but to go back to God's word and stand firmly on that. We'll identify the trademark, and we'll go back to the word of God. That's where we're going to plant our flag. So last week was a watershed message. I want to encourage you to go back and listen to it if you haven't heard it already. Today, I want to address the idea, in light of everything that's going on in the world, it's almost Christmas, what does it mean for us, what does the Bible say that it means for us, that Jesus Christ, the living Son of God, for all of eternity, came into the world and dwelt among men as a man and lived this life just like we do? What does that mean for us? What are the implications of that. I would submit to you that the implications are huge because every religion in the world teaches that man is trying its very best to get to God. Christianity teaches that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became man and dwelt among us. And while we were still in our sin, he came and he died for us. And he rose again from the grave. He defeated the power of death. And because he is alive today, we will be made alive when we die. We will go to be with him for all of eternity. And what a great joy that is. We had the privilege yesterday of being able to participate in a celebration of life of one of our dear sisters, Miss Pam Davis, who's gone on to be with the Lord. And it was a beautiful service, and I believe it commemorated her life very, very well. And we are people of hope this morning. Though we do suffer, and though we do mourn, and though we do grieve, and though we do hurt, all is appropriate, all of which is appropriate, we are people of hope because we know She is in the presence of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning. And we know that we will see her again one day in glory. Amen? So let's talk about what Jesus Christ dwelling among us, what Emmanuel, God with us, means for us in light of the world in which we live. And I want to go to a scripture that I bet some of you will be familiar with, but you may not have heard all of it. I'm going back into Isaiah chapter 6, or Isaiah chapter 9, rather. We're going to do verses 2 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, what you find is that the prophet Isaiah was speaking to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people in that time and in that place. And at this time, God's chosen people, 
I believe, can identify with us today in many different ways. One of which is that they had failed, both on a personal level and on a corporate level, they had failed to keep God's commandments and decrees. They had blown it. Their government had failed, and their religion had failed. Church, we can identify with this today because we sit here in a culture today whose government has failed us. Amen? No matter what side of the aisle you are on, we can all agree that Romans 13 says that God has instituted every government in order to uphold justice and promote good over evil. We agree? That's the job of the government. That's why God put them there. That's from Romans chapter 13. And today we live in what I believe is the greatest nation in the world, yet our government is promoting policies and legislation that is the very opposite of justice. Since Roe v. Wade was passed, we have murdered 69 million infants. That is not the job of a just government. That's evil. The government has failed us on many levels. But we can also relate to Israel because, church, let's be honest. In American culture, the church has failed the culture. The church has let our culture down. We've been called to be salt and light. And instead of being salt and light to our culture, America in the church has become a consumerist business model by which church ceases to be God's people being the hands and feet of Jesus, serving the poorest of the poor and the neediest of the needy, preaching the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. And instead, we have turned it into this consumerist model where people come in and eat like it's a Ponderosa buffet once a week. We say that's all we need to be Christians. And then we go out into the world and we live in ways that do not reflect the character and the nature of God through his Holy Spirit that he's given us. Now, I'm not saying that's you today. I'm not saying that's Eastern Life Church. And if you're watching online, praise God. I'm not saying this is you. But as a whole, the church in America has become big business. It has become about marketing. It has become about branding. It has become about image. It has become about formula, as if there is some formula that we can implement and follow that will give us the results we need, just like a Fortune 500 company. The formula we've been given is to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified and to preach it until the day we die and then our children will follow us and do the same thing. And the communities that we operate in will hear the Word of God and have their lives transformed. They'll be made new in Jesus Christ. That's the only formula we need. But today, the church has become big business. If you don't look a certain way, sound a certain way, act a certain way, pretend to be a certain way, you don't fit in. Church, this is a place where all of us have a spot. We all have a place to fit. We all have a seat at the table today. But in America today, we need the church. We don't need big business. We don't need formula. We need Jesus Christ and his people. We need his hands and feet at work today. The government has let the culture down, the church has let the culture down, and the consequence of that, both for Israel in Isaiah chapter 9 and both for America today, is that God will take his hands off and give the people what they want. And that is a scary thing when God gives a sinner free reign to sin. The shackles come off, we push forward without God, and things get real bad real quick. And we're living that out today. I still think we're at the very beginning of it. It's not the worst it's ever been. Church, the environment that Jesus was born into, lest you forget the government, was so scared of Jesus that they implemented a policy by which all boys less than two years old would be gathered up and killed just to keep Jesus from coming. Now, that's a knock at the door you and I don't want. 
But church, there's no end to the sin that a culture will bathe itself in without the restraining hand of God and His grace upon it. So what we need is to get back to the Word of God, get back to the precepts of God, get back to the character of God, and live and operate in that. Because God's judgment is upon the culture. God's judgment is upon the culture. This is what was happening in Isaiah chapter 9. And if you read the book of Isaiah, what you find is that for the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, God is pronouncing judgment over his people. God is pronouncing judgment over them because they had failed him, because they had not listened to him, because they had not upheld his law. He is judging them. It's not a fun read, chapters 1 through 39. Not a fun read if you're an Israelite. But, In chapter 9, we get this little glimmer of hope. In chapter 9, God sort of takes a reprieve from his judgment, and he gives the people, amidst all the bad news, some good news. And that's what I want to bring you today, is some good news. Because we have reason to be hopeful, even in a culture steeped in darkness. We have reason to be hopeful today, even as we grieve and as we mourn and as we suffer. No matter what you're going through in life today, no matter how dark the night may seem, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Amen? Amen. The people walking in darkness see a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Church, we are hopeful today because we have a bright future. No matter how deep you are in it right now, listen to me. No matter how far you have run, no matter how anxious and depressed you are, no matter how lonely you are, no matter how bad you have screwed it up, you have a bright future ahead of you if you'll simply submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. If we'll say yes to Jesus and say no to that old life, there is a light shining in the darkness for you. You say, you don't know my situation. I've screwed it up too bad. It is too far gone. Church, if Jesus loved us enough to leave heaven and come to earth to live and die and rise again for us, nobody is too far gone. The loving arm of God's grace is further than any distance we could run. There is a bright future ahead of us, and we have hope. Let's go to verse 3. He says, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoiced at the harvest, as warriors Rejoice when dividing the plunder. He's talking about rejoicing this morning. I loved our time of worship because everybody seemed to be participating. Now, some of you may have been mouthing the words to the second verse of the first Noel because nobody knew there was a second verse to the first Noel. So we pretend to know it, and that's all right. But church, this morning, we participated in worship. We got to sing to God. We got to give to God. We get to be here this morning to set aside time for the things of God. We are participating in worship today, and what's amazing about the church, and what's amazing about God's people, and you see it in this scripture, is that at this point, judgment is falling upon the nation, and yet God is saying to them, hey, there is a time where your future is going to be bright, and you are going to worship, and you are going to praise, and church, the amazing thing about the church is that we worship in anticipation, not in the outcome. We don't wait for the victory before we begin worshiping God. We don't wait for lives to get better. We don't wait to clean ourselves up. We don't wait until things slow down before we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, a mistake in the church today that we often make, and I believe this is a reflection of our culture. 
we're so driven by our feelings. You know what I mean? We say, well, pastor, I just feel like this is what I need to do. I just feel that this isn't the right thing. I just feel, and we get led by our feelings. We follow our feelings. Our actions are driven by how we feel in our heart. And we say things like, oh, just follow your heart and everything will be fine. Church, I don't know about your heart. I don't know your heart, but I know my heart. My heart will lead me in some dark places if I follow it. My heart is dangerous. We worship not when things get good, but we worship while things are still bad because we know we have a God who is still good. Amen. You with me? We don't wait until our situation improves before we decide to get right with God and start worshiping Him. I want to encourage you this morning. If you come into this place with some stuff going on in your life, and I know that all of us are dealing with many different things. It's a difficult year. Now is the time that we can be different than our culture. Amen. As they mourn, and as they hurt, and as they see no hope, and yet they see us worship as we mourn and as we hurt, that gives them hope that there's something better for them. And what I'll encourage you today is that when we worship in anticipation of victory, not waiting for victory before we worship, we will see walls come down when we do it. In fact, I'll remind you of Joshua chapter 6. Some of you all remember this story when God had given the land of Canaan to the Israelite people. He said, this land is yours, you're going to take it. But the land was surrounded by really, really big walls that they could not penetrate and an army that they could not defeat. The army was too big. It was too well equipped. And Israel had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and they were hungry and they were tired and their situation was bad and their feelings were not in the right place. Yet God said, there's a victory for you and you've got to go get it. And he equipped them to do it. But remember, in Joshua 6, he did not send in the cavalry first. He didn't send in the archers. He didn't send in the armor bearers. He didn't send in the warriors. He sent in the worshipers. And he told them, you're going to march around these walls for six days, and you're going to blow your trumpets. And on day seven, you're going to march around it seven times, and you're going to shout with the victory, and you're going to blow those trumpets, and those walls are going to come down. And when those walls come down, after you worship, you're going to take that land that I've given to you. Church, what God has for you is not just going to come when things calm down because our life never calms down. There will not be a day when things just on their own get better because we live in a world that is too stained by sin for things to just get better on their own. And if we wait for that in anticipation that one day when life gets easy, then we'll worship God, we're going to miss the opportunity to see God give us victory in the hard battles today because the worship is an anticipation not in the outcome. We worship today while things are hard, knowing that God gives victory in the darkest of times. And when God does that, the world who looks at it will have no other answer for it other than God must have done that. Amen. This morning I look out and we've got Hoss Davis here and we've got Dave and Allie here and yesterday was probably one of the hardest, if not the hardest day of their lives. And yet they're here today. How does that happen? Are they just stronger people than everybody else? No. But they've got a God who is. And they've got victory. They've got victory. May not feel like victory today. But right now, Pam Davis is looking in the face of victory in her Savior. And that's where our hope is. We don't wait to worship. We worship now because it's the right thing to do. It's because it's what God tells us to do. We are worshipers. It's who we are. Let's keep going.
verse 4. It says, For in the day, as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. God says, Your enemy has been defeated. There is a bright future. You're going to worship even though you don't see the victory just yet. And you're going to worship because your oppressor has been defeated. Church, this is good news. They were looking ahead to one day when this would happen. The great thing about living in the world today, with all of its problems, we get to look back in history at something that's already happened. Amen? You and I get to look back 2,000 years ago to where Jesus hung on the cross and he saved us from our sins. We get to look back at it because it's already happened. You know, I don't, I don't know about you. Maybe y'all can participate with me this morning. Before I came to Jesus as my Savior, I looked like a good person on the outside. If you would have seen me in church, if I'd shown up today and sat out in the crowd with you all, I'd know all the songs. I'd know all the scriptures. I'd have a nice-looking Bible. And I'd sit out there and I'd look just as good as every one of you look today. But man, on the inside, I was a slave to sin. I was broken. I was hurting. I was angry. I was lonely. I was tired. And I could not get my life together no matter how many times I tried. And I was a desperate individual. And there was a moment in my life when I got down on my knees in front of an open Bible reading Romans chapter 8 and the Word of God became real to me and the Holy Spirit drew me and I said yes to Jesus. And when I did that, church, the bonds of sin were broken in my life. The oppression that I had lived under since the day I was born was broken. And no, my life isn't perfect today, but what I can tell you for me, and it's also true for you because the same Jesus that loves me is the same Jesus that loves you. When we say yes to Jesus, he will break the bonds that enslave us today. Will he fix all of our problems? Maybe not in the short term. I can't answer that, but what I can answer is that he will fix you. He will change you. Look at this scripture. Look at the next scripture. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, it says that he disarmed the powers and the authorities and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. These powers and authorities are who our true enemies really are. You see, in America today, we make the mistake of believing that our enemies are the people on the other side that we disagree with. Those are our enemies, right? They're the ones causing all the problems. But the Bible says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not men and women that are the problem. It is the powers, it is the darkness, it is the authorities that are behind the scenes, the spiritual powers at work in the world that are influencing them that are the problem. And those are the same powers that are influencing us every day. And if not for the grace of God through his Holy Spirit speaking through us, we would have no chance against them. You may wonder, why does it feel like in my life, over and over, I do my best to get it right, I do my best to be a good person, and yet every time I try, I just fall deeper and deeper into the pit that I'm in. Anybody ever been there? The more you try, the worse it gets. It's like you're trying to dig out of a hole, and as you try to dig out of it, the hole gets deeper. It is a miserable existence. The solution is right in front of you this morning, and it's so simple. And it's so easy. Now some of us won't want to hear it. Because the solution to that problem involves admitting that the problem really is us. The problem really is me. Is my family a problem? Maybe so. 
Is my job a problem? Probably so. Are my circumstances the problem? I'm sure the circumstances are bad. But at the end of the day, the solution that Jesus offers is not one that fixes everyone around you. It's the one that fixes you and me. And the only way we get it is we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We confess that we are the problem. We turn away from those decisions that we've made. And we make the all-important decision to follow Jesus wherever he takes us. And when we do that, he transforms us from the inside out. You say, well, how does that fix my problems? Oh, when you've got the Holy Spirit guiding you, life's different. When you've got the Word of God directing you, your life will be different. I can't tell you how it's going to play out in your life, but I'll tell you that in my life, not only did God resurrect me from the dead spiritually, he raised up my family and put them back together. He put grace and unity where there was once brokenness and division and hurt. God can do these things. And he wants to do it for you. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, you can make it today. You don't have to do it in a church building, but there's no better place to say yes to Jesus than surrounded by other people that have already said yes to Jesus. It's a good way to go. Let's keep going. Isaiah chapter 9, next scripture. In verse 5, it says, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. Now, this one, i got to be honest, I have no idea what that means. When I read that the first time, I thought, what in the world does that mean? So I had to do a little, had to do a little study. And it's interesting because Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, is using this language of war and battle. It was something they were familiar with in that day. And he speaks of the battle... And what this equates to is that in those days when God's people would win a battle, they would win a war, they would go in and they would clear out a foreign nation, they wouldn't simply leave the battlefield the mess that it was when the battle was over. They would plunder what they could, they would take out of the foreign nation whatever was valuable, whatever they could use, and then the rest of it, they would just pile it up and burn. So old armor that had been pierced in battle, old clothes that were blood-soaked from the war, they would just pile it up and they would burn it. And it was like a big, crazy bonfire. Sounds pretty morbid, I know, but that's what they did. This is how they operated. And they did it not only for convenience sake, but they did it because they wanted to leave no memory of what had come before. You with me? Like when you mess with God's people, God is going to wipe the memory of you off the planet. That was the idea. There will be nothing left. There will be no memory. There will be no memorial. There will be no museum of this old battle, of these things that God did. Everything that had come before has now been erased and replaced with what God had instituted. That was the idea. Now, what in the world does this mean for us today? Here's what I think it means. Now, I could be wrong. So you go to your Bible. You go to your study Bible. You study. And if I'm wrong, I'll be wrong. But here's what I think it means. I think it means this. In the battles that we face every day, there are a lot of bad memories, a lot of bad decisions, a lot of regrets, a lot of hurts, a lot of wished I would have done it differently, wish I would have been a better dad, wish I would have been a better mom, wish I would have been a better spouse, wish I would have been a better teenager, wish I would have been a better church member, wish I was a better Christian. There is a lot of memories and there's a lot of mess on the battlefield. That is our soul. And even though many of us can stand here today and say, Pastor, I've been redeemed and transformed by the saving power of Jesus Christ. Don't all of us still, even knowing that, don't a lot of us still look back and say, man, I wish I would have done things differently. 
Man, I wish I would have fought that battle differently than I did. Man, life might be better if I would have just done it better and made better decisions. Church, here's what I think this scripture means. I think it means that at the end of this age, when Jesus Christ has come back and the battle's been won and the war is over, and the Bible says that he's going to wipe every tear from every eye, I think the reason that we will no longer have any pain or sorrow is because when he does that, he is going to clear the battlefield of all the old wreckage and regrets that we bring with us. All the old wished I would'ves are going to be burned up. All the old blood-stained garments that we walk around in from the battles that we have fought, all the scars that we bear today in the kingdom that Jesus Christ is bringing, in the kingdom that you're being invited to, the king is telling you, we're going to wipe away all the bad memories of what you've had to go through. Church, the good news of God's grace and forgiveness is that at the end of the day, we don't enter into God's kingdom with a bunch of regrets. We don't enter into God's kingdom with a bunch of failures and fears and worries and doubts and anxieties because the battlefield was just too bloody. Your life may be so messed up. You may be walking in here with pierced armor and bloody clothes. Not physically, but that's the state of your soul. And Jesus can clean you up. He can take all that's old, and he'll burn it. He'll do away with it. He'll forget about it. And he can make you new. We have a king who avenges every hurt. Not one tear shed in this kingdom is wasted in the kingdom to come. Not one regret will we carry with us in that day. Amen? Isaiah chapter 9. Let's keep going. Let's skip Isaiah 54, 17. For unto us a child is born. I bet you'll know this verse. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Have you ever thought about that? The government will be on his shoulders. How many of you are tired of carrying the weight of a failed government on your shoulders? You ever feel like you're the only one who sees the truth and you're trying to convince people and they think the same thing about you and it's like an impasse that we never get past? Some of us are carrying the weight of 250 years of bad decisions in our culture. The good news of God's kingdom is that when we say yes to Jesus, all the decisions, all the legislation... It's on his shoulders, not ours. The weight of the world comes off of us and goes on to him. He will bear the weight of the government on his shoulders. He will be responsible. He will be the one to carry it, not us. We won't have to worry about who's calling the shots when we say yes to Jesus. Because when we say yes to Jesus, the weight comes off me and goes on to him. All the decisions are his. I just say yes to him, whatever they are. And the good news is, there's no debate about it. There's no, is this right or is this wrong? Is it a black and white issue? Is it a gray issue? Can we debate about it? When we say yes to Jesus, the weight of the government's on his shoulders. We just follow him and everything will work out. It is simple. Church, don't you wish we had that in this world today? That we could just be ruled directly by God? In our culture, that's not the case today. But in our lives as the church, this can be us. Amen. The weight of the decisions of our life should be on his shoulders. He said he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. I want to talk about those four titles for just a few minutes and then we'll close this morning. But let's talk about he is the Wonderful Counselor. It says a child will be born... A son will be given. And I think this verse speaks of the fact that when Jesus entered the world, he wasn't simply a baby who was born like any other baby. Amen? This wasn't just some baby that was born. 
This was a son who was given. He wasn't just Mary and Joseph's son. He was God's son. And he is God's son. And he was given to us. And he'll bear the weight of the government on his shoulders. And it says that he'll be called Wonderful Counselor. I want to talk about wise counsel for just a moment. Is anybody in the room this morning willing to say that you've had people in your life who have given you good, wise counsel that's helped you? I look around the room and I see some hands up and I can even think of some of the hands. Like Sarah, I see your hand go up and I think of Mitzi Borum. She's given you a lot of wise counsel. Wonderful counselor. There's a man in my life named Charles Palmer. He doesn't go to church here. He goes to church at Hardin in Kentucky. He's been a wonderful counselor for me. But even in these wonderful counselors that we've got, they're not perfect. Amen? Some of the advice you've got to throw out. Not always good. Most of it is, but not always. Some of us in the room have not had the benefit of having wonderful counselors in our lives. Some of us have gone through life wishing God would send somebody who could help us out, but it seems like they never show up. It seems like all the advice we get is bad advice. Now, I want to encourage you, you may be looking for wonderful counselors in the wrong places. All right, You may be looking for wonderful counselors in not-so-wonderful places. But the Bible says that when Jesus comes, he will be our wonderful counselor. He will give us advice. He will tell us what to do. This isn't rocket science. It's actually quite simple. But the good news of the gospel is that when we say yes to Jesus and God becomes the Lord of our life, God doesn't leave it on our shoulders to make good decisions from here on out. Amen? He doesn't leave it up to me to make sure that all my decisions are wise. The Bible says that when we receive Christ as our Savior, that His Holy Spirit enters into us and dwells among us. In the same way that Jesus dwelt on earth with humanity, the Holy Spirit dwells among His church spiritually. And He is a wonderful counselor. He is a wonderful counselor. We aren't left to ourselves to figure all this out. He gives us answers. He walks with us daily. You may think there's no answers to your situation. You may think that your situation is so unique and so messed up that there are no answers to be had. I want to give you some hope today that when you receive Jesus Christ, you are given the best counsel you can get anywhere. No medication, no therapist, and those things are good, and those things absolutely have their place. But there is no replacing the wonderful counsel that we get directly from the throne room of God into our hearts. He is a wonderful counselor. Let's go to the next one. We'll skip that. For sake of time, I'm long-winded, I apologize. Not only is he a wonderful counselor, he is a mighty God, amen? amen? It says he is a wonderful counselor, he is a mighty God, he is mighty to save. Look at what Zephaniah 3.17 says, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, he will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. He is a mighty God. He is mighty to handle the weight that is put upon him. He is mighty to handle all of our problems. Amen? He was mighty to save me when I was lost, and he was mighty to fix my situations that I found myself in. He is mighty enough for you today. He is big enough to face whatever we can throw at him. He's not surprised by any of it. He's not sitting on the throne, wringing his hands in fear and in worry. Oh, what are we going to do now? Things have just gotten so messed up. He is a mighty God, and he's in control. He knows what he's doing. He's got a plan, and he will execute it. He will execute it. Let's go to the next one. He's an everlasting father. 
He's an everlasting father. Psalm 68, 5 says that he is a father of the fatherless and a defender of the widows. That's God in his holy dwelling. I don't know what your father's situation is. I don't know what your father's situation is. But I know that in America, somewhere between one and four and two and three children born in America today are born into a home where not only is the biological father present, but there's no father figure at all. So there's no biological father, there's no stepdad, there's no live-in boyfriend, there's, there's just not a man there. And studies show, and you can look this up for yourself, it's on the CDC's website, as much as you trust that, you can look that up and read those statistics, it's pretty interesting. We know, we know that children born into fatherless homes are far more likely to end up in lives of crime, they're far more likely to be depressed, they're far more likely to experience suicidal thoughts, they're far more likely to drop out of high school. Something I found interesting, I don't know if you know this, Children born into homes with no father or no father figure are twice as likely to die within the first four months of being born. They just are twice as likely to not survive. They just don't make it. And these are statistics that are amassed using tons and tons of data. These children, it seems, just aren't made to survive without a dad. And many of the issues we have in our world today are due to the fact that the security and the peace and the protection and the nurture and the strength of a family has been put into the hands of the fathers. And when the fathers punt on their responsibility to be fathers and it's all laid upon the shoulders of the mother, the mothers aren't equipped to do, to do it all. And God bless our mothers and God bless our single mothers who are doing everything they can do. God bless the women who never stop. But church, a culture without fathers is a culture that's going to seek conflict because it knows nothing else. It's a culture that will be hurt and anxious because it knows nothing else. It's no wonder my generation uses the word anxiety in every other sentence because it's all we know. Because in many cases, the anxiety that builds up from a childhood where there was no father to protect, there was no father to teach, there was no father to love, there was no father to nurture, it creates a lot of anxiety in the heart of a young person. And we enter into a world where we don't worship and see God as a father and we experience the same things over and over and over. Church, I want to encourage you today, whether you had a great dad or whether you had no dad at all, God is not simply in heaven calling the shots. He is not simply a king. He is not simply a counselor who tells us what to do and how to do it. He is a father who loves and nurtures and protects. He is a relational father. He is a God in all forms, including the one who loves us personally. He takes extra care to be a father to his children, and he wants to be your father today. He is an everlasting father. He never gets tired of doing it. And finally, he's the prince of peace. He's the prince of peace. Anybody other than me tired of all the conflict in the world? And I, I guess I was dumb enough to think that maybe, maybe after 2020, the conflict will calm down. Maybe after 2020, it'll get better. Church, what I see every day on the news and on social media is that the conflict is just rising. The pressure's boiling, starting to boil over. People are restless. People are angry. And there's conflict all over the place. And it's moved its way, sadly, into families. Some of our families operate this way, where we operate only by conflict. If we're not yelling, we're not talking. It's nothing but conflict. It's all we know. 
And it's even worked its way into the church where if you don't believe exactly like I do and think exactly like I do and talk exactly like I do and dress exactly like I do, you and I are no longer brothers. We are in conflict. Isn't it sad that the way the world fights is becoming the way our families and our church fight? That associations that were once banded together are now splintered. That pastors can't even have fellowship with one another because they feel they're in competition and in conflict with one another. What a shame it is that we seem to seek out and thrive on conflict. Praise God that when Jesus Christ came into my life, he calmed my anger. And he began to resolve conflict in my own heart which worked its way out into my life, and I no longer seek to conflict with other people. Amen? And in the kingdom that's coming that Jesus Christ is bringing, he will be a mighty God who will win all of our battles. He'll be a wonderful father who will relationally love and nurture us. He will be a wonderful counselor who will give us wise advice and counsel, but he will also be the prince of peace who will keep us in a peaceful state for all of eternity. There's a day coming where the fight's going to end. There's a day coming, and I'm done preaching, but I want you to hear this. There's a day coming, the Bible says, that for the first time in human history, over 6,000 years, there's a day coming when the conflict will cease and everybody will agree. Can you imagine that? We'll all agree. And you know what we'll agree on? It won't be political, it won't be social, it won't be about formulas. It won't be about who's right and who's wrong. Here's what we're all going to agree on. The Bible says that every, at that day, every knee's going to bow and touch the ground. Amen. Those knees are going to touch the ground. And every mouth is going to speak. He's Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the Prince of Peace. When Jesus came the first time, it brought conflict. When he comes again, he's bringing peace with him. Conflict, will be, it'll be quick, it'll be swift, it'll be harsh, and it'll be over. And every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now let me tell you what my job today is. My job today, number one, is to give you hope because that's what the scripture does, is to give us hope. But just as importantly, my job, my job is to tell you that at some point in your existence, you're going to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. You're going to do it. You may be stubborn today. You may be able to say no today to Jesus. You may be able to say he might be Lord, but he's not my Lord. You might be doing that today. You might say, not today. Not today, God. But I'm telling you, the day's coming that you're going to see him, and the reality's going to wash over you. The reality's going to wash over you that you spent your life rejecting him. And in that moment, you're going to bow the knee and you're going to say, I'm wrong. And I was wrong about him. And you're going to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. But only those of us who acknowledge him as Lord here on earth will be acknowledged by him in that day. That's what the Bible says. If you deny me before God or before the world, I will deny you before my Father. I want to help you know today that the day is coming when you will confess him as Lord. But your eternity will be much better. It will be much more glorious if we do it today. I believe in my heart. I don't know this, but I believe it. I believe that there are some people in the room today that have never bowed that knee before Jesus Christ and said, he's my Lord. Jesus Christ is my Lord. And maybe you're in this place today 
and you know that you've never done it. Maybe you've said it with your mouth, but your heart's never been there. It's not been real. You haven't really followed through. He hasn't been the Lord of your life. You've just said it. And your life reflects that, and your heart reflects that. And this morning, you're wrestling with the decision, do I say yes today? Is today the day I bow the knee to Jesus Christ? I want to invite you to do that this morning. And I'll encourage you that when you say yes to Jesus, this church and all of heaven will rejoice with you because you will become a person of hope just like we have hope. Amen? Church, let's pray that God saves somebody this morning. God, I've preached the scripture the best I know how to preach it. I pray that it's been faithful that what you wanted to say, God, has come through and has spoken to the hearts of your people. God, it's not my intention today to manipulate anybody or to sell somebody on some idea, on some new way of life, God. It's not my intention to work up emotion so that somebody in a wave of emotion will make a quick decision that they haven't considered. God, my intention is simply that your word would be spoken into hearts. Because the Bible says that when your word goes out, in Isaiah 55, it says it never comes back without doing what you intended for it to do. And God, I believe in my heart this morning, it is your deep desire to become an everlasting father to a hurting person in this place. I believe in my heart it's your desire to become a wonderful counselor to somebody who is looking for answers but has never found them. It's my belief this morning by the authority of your word, God, that this morning you are looking to be the Prince of Peace in a life that has known nothing but conflict. God, we just simply ask you this morning to be the mighty God who's mighty to save. Before we say amen, with every head bowed this morning and every eye remaining closed, nobody looking around, I just want to ask, is there anybody this morning by the raising of hands, who would say that today's the day that I bow the knee to Jesus Christ and say yes to him as my Lord and Savior? Is there anybody this morning who's never been saved and today's the day that Jesus Christ becomes the Lord of your life? I see no hands this morning. And Father, we trust you with that outcome. But I pray for the person right now who's hurting and struggling that you'll weigh so heavy on their heart, God, that they will not be able to resist this morning the call to salvation. And God, for the Christians in the room today who are hurting and struggling, who need prayer, I pray that this would be a place of freedom and hope this morning where they feel free to come to this altar and pray and to bring their anxieties before you because the Bible says you care for them and that your ministry will be done this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's all.